Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're okay out there. Thanks for tuning in. Today on the program, my guest is Chelsea Martin, author of the new novel entitled Tell Me I'm an Artist. It's kind of complicated. I, I do like being funny. I feel like it's kind of a crutch in writing and especially from doing readings and stuff it's like a quick way for to like sense approval as if someone laughs or is like this is so funny so i think that kind of like i don't know my insecurity feeds on that and wants that approval so i think that's part of it i also think like it's it can be kind of a distraction from like sloppy ideas or something if you're inserting a little joke like it kind of i don't know I don't know. So I actually was trying to be less funny in this book. Okay, that was Chelsea Martin. Her new novel, Tell Me I'm an Artist, is available now from Soft Skull. I believe this is Chelsea's third time on The Other People Show. We have uh, gotten to know each other a bit over the years, and I'm such a fan of hers. She's so smart, and she is such a funny person. I don't care what she says. She's hilarious. And she's just a very gifted artist. I feel like this new novel of hers should be her breakout book. Tell Me I'm an Artist is funny, smart, big-hearted. It's a book about a young woman from a hard scrabble upbringing who finds herself in art school in San Francisco. It's a coming-of-age story. It's a story about female friendship. It's about class. It's about family. It's about the act of creation, the making of art itself. And it does such a great job of capturing the idealism and the privilege and the many absurdities of the art school experience, which, as I was reading this book, I realized what great fodder for satire and humor art school is. It's a very ripe environment. Tell Me I'm an Artist is also a book that asks important questions about what makes a person an artist in the first place and 
who in our society has the opportunity to make art? My conversation with Chelsea Martin is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by the Feminist Press, publisher of a new story collection by Luke Danny Blue called Pretend It's My Body. Pretend It's My Body is Luke's debut. It is informed by their experiences in and between genders. This debut story collection blurs fantasy and reality, excavating new meanings from our varied dysphorias. Luke Danny Blue invites the reader into a world of outlier lives made central and magical thinking made real. This collection is surreal, darkly funny, and always deeply felt. Pretend it's my body is bound together by the act of searching for a spark of recognition and a story of one's own. That's Pretend It's My Body, the debut story collection by Luke Danny Blue, available now from the Feminist Press. So quickly, I just want to offer up a few orders of business. I do an email newsletter every week, once a week. And if you want to sign up for that, it's free. You can do so at otherppl.com or bradlesley.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. The newsletter is pretty straightforward. It's just a list, really, of things that I've been reading or that I'm interested in. I share stuff once a week. I will not bombard you with emails. So sign up for the newsletter if you are so inclined. This podcast is offered freely. It's a free show, almost 800 episodes and counting, and I make all of it, the entire archive, available to listeners free of charge. So it is a listener-supported show, and I'm counting on regular listeners to help keep the show going. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash other ppl pod you can support the show for one dollar a month three dollars five ten twenty whatever you can swing and as you move up the scale you can get stuff there's other people merch t-shirt tote bag coffee mug sticker book club subscription I will send you a postcard in the mail, and so on and so forth. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Likewise, if you would like to take a couple of minutes to rate and review the show, it really helps. So wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on, please take uh, the time to go rate and review the show. It helps new listeners find the show. The more ratings that I get, the better the show does in the algorithm. You know what I mean. So please rate and review the show. Last but not least, I have a book out. It's a novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to check that out, go track it down wherever you get your books. So my guest, once again, is Chelsea Martin. Her new novel, Tell Me I'm an Artist, is available now from Soft Skull. Chelsea's other books include the essay collection, Caca Dolce, and a novella called Mickey. It is always a pleasure to talk with her, and this new novel of hers is just fantastic. 
I'm very excited to get to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Chelsea Martin, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Tell Me I'm an Artist. I try to work in here. I a lot of times end up on the couch or in bed when I'm actually like in writing zone. I feel like that's kind of a thing. Like I've been better, like ever since I injured my knee, I don't know if you know this, but I broke my kneecap in April. Yeah. And I was sort of forced to lie down in bed, you know, like I had to kind of recuperate after surgery and everything. And normally I would be in my office either sitting at my desk or standing at my stand-up desk, but I got into the habit of writing while either in bed or in a recliner and I'm kind of still doing it. It's nice to just relax. It doesn't interrupt your sleep. Like they say like sleep hygiene, like spending time in your bedroom or something when you're just doing awake activities will like harm your ability to fall asleep easily. You know, I don't know. I I don't know if it's harmed my ability to fall asleep, but it's harmed my ability maybe to stay asleep. Like I wake up in the night a lot, but I think part of it is that my knee kind of hurts. So I just, I get uncomfortable. Like last night I woke up at two. It still wakes you up? Yeah. Or, but I mean, it's not even that. It might just be like I ate too much dessert or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'm getting old. You just wake up for no reason. But I was up from like two to five. I'm often up from two to five, which isn't great. Yeah. I do that too. Well, I sleep with um, my son Casper, so he wakes me up and then I'll often just not be able to go back to sleep. You sleep with him a lot? Because I do that too with River. Like we have to sleep. Like we, I don't know. I don't know how much you want to talk yeah. about this, but like both of our sons uh, have epilepsy, which we've bonded yeah. over. And like, this is something I try to explain. My parents are like, are you sleeping with him a lot? Like, why are you sleeping with him all the time? And I'm like, "Yeah, you got to understand if he sleeps in his own room, we have a monitor on him, like one of those video monitors. And mm-hmm. every time he makes a peep, I jump up in the night. So it's like, it's almost better yeah. just for one of us to sleep with him because then we'll be able to actually sleep. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's such a comfort if I wake up and I can just check that he's okay and breathing and just sleeping normally. I think I would have to get up and go check on him constantly Yeah, if we weren't sleeping together. So, but yeah, it, it's hard because he is a toddler. So he's just moving around a lot, you know, puts his legs over my face, <laughs> things like that. It's yeah. not very comfortable. <laughs> Here's what I've discovered. Uh, I have discovered that if you put I don't know how big your bed is, but if you have like a queen or a king size bed, I put a pillow in between us hmm. as like a divider and it sort of helps with like the kicking. Okay, uh, I'll try that. Yeah, you might want to try that strategy. But we tend to just like spiral around the whole bed. Just like he moves toward me and then I'll move away and we just go in a circle. Yeah. Like our heads end up at the foot of the bed and then at the side of the bed. <laughs> So are you sleeping though? I mean, have you found a way to sort of like work through it? Um, yeah, like Xanax and uh, weed mints and things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just talked to Timothy Willis Sanders and he got me onto this uh, ashwagandha. It's like some sort of nootropic herb. It's supposed to relax okay. you. So you might want oh. to throw that into the mix. That and like yeah. ro- roseola, ro- rhodiola, rosea, and uh, a mushroom called lion's mane, which is not like psychedelic, but it's like supposedly relaxing or something okay like a powdered yeah you can get it you can get it in like a capsule it's like you know one of these earthy remedy type things that seems cool to try you know i tried the ashwagandha and you have to sort of figure out 
what your dosage is. You know, it's different for everybody. And I took one the other day before a social function. It wasn't even that social. I was just going to be like hanging out with family. But I was like, okay, this will be a good, good time to try it. And <laughs> no. I, I did not. I got to be honest. I didn't notice much of a difference. But mm. I did make it through. I didn't have like any super difficult like internal battles or anything. You know, sometimes it can be sort of a stressful, but I felt like it was fine. Oh, yeah. Well, that's something. Uh, well, I want to congratulate you on this lovely novel. This is your first novel? Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And has it been something that you've been like struggling towards or is this just the way it worked out and this is the first time you gave it a shot? I think I just had some kind of, I don't know, notion that I didn't want to write a novel for a long time or that it was too mainstream of an object. So versus what think, versus like essays and short stories, I guess so. Yeah, just more experimental forms. And this um, and this though, I mean, I do feel like this. I was thinking about I always think about a book when I'm admiring it, like how it's put together, you know, especially like a long narrative. Um, mm -hmm. And there are some traditional and I don't say this in a, like a pejorative sense, but just like traditional narrative plot things or, or uh, framing the narrative. I mean, this is an art school narrative, I guess you could call it. And your protagonist is telling the story of her life and times in this art school environment over the course of a semester, correct? Yeah. So you have that time framework, you know, which I yeah. sort of noticed. And then I'm also working on a book of my own right now that feels kind of unwieldy because it's in the early stages. And so I'm like, whatever I'm reading, I'm like, tell me how to do this again. Like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. You know? And one of the things I noticed about your book is that you have like a cast of characters, you know, which of course is maybe the most like elemental thing about a novel. Uh, but you're kind of limited. You sort of defined your, your character universe. And I guess in an art school environment, you could potentially go crazy and have like 30 characters because there are so many different people that you're interacting with in a school environment. Was that, yeah. was that a, something that you contended with in early drafts? Like, did you find yourself like, oh, well, I could mention this character or person or whatever, but did you get to a point where you're like, you know what, there's too many. I need to cut this down and maybe combine characters into one person so that the re reader yeah. doesn't get lost. Yeah, I did cut a couple characters, but I also was just really nervous about having... I don't know, art school has so many characters in it and it's really easy to make that very cartoony and having all of these wild personalities clashing just felt like a dangerous thing to attempt. So I really tried to limit it to just a few core characters and, and then try to show the larger art school scene and just kind of impersonal glimpses. Right. I think yeah. it's a wise choice. I mean, this is a film or a film. This is a um, a book and a story about female friendship. Mm -hmm. So you have your main character, Joelle Barry. And by, I love the, your character naming is like so good. I, <laughs> I always, I love that when I, I'm just like, yes, that's exactly the right name for this character. So there's Joelle or Joey, her best friend, Suze, is... Um, you know, a huge part of the book. And then Suze's roommate, Diana, to a lesser degree, but kind of more and more so as the book continues towards its end. And then there are like a couple dudes, mm -hmm. <laughs> like like maybe love interests, but not really, kind of. Yeah. And then 
trying to think. And then there's like the guy, what's the what's the Egyptian guy's name who is the uh, the sort of cheerleader for the oh Alan Alan for the art school who's constantly like you know smiling and getting in Joelle's face and trying to like rally her or something you know yes. But teacher-wise, there's not a lot of that. It's really, you've kind of narrowed it down to like the intimate particulars of Joel's life as a student. And then concurrently, there is a narrative that has its own energy and momentum that is at a remove from art school, but has to do with Joel's family life, which is difficult and dramatic. And I feel like is the heart of the book. Cool. Yeah. So she's going through all this. I mean, her family is going through kind of like a personal crisis, I guess. And so she's at art school hearing about it and being asked to help in various ways. And she's got to, um, yeah, I guess, choose which problems she's going to be concerned with her art school problems or her, um, family created family problems well it's a it's a book about class as much as it is about art i mean it's about both but i think it asks a very important question which is like who has permission to be creative and to make art in this society yeah uh, as presently constituted and it's a question that's well worth asking and maybe doesn't get asked enough because you know when it comes to the literary world for sure sort of unspoken truth of it all or often unspoken truth is that it's a world of privilege yeah Um, i always like joke i mean like if you ever want to like an indicator of just how like cushy in a way the publishing industry is though i guess like there's also you can also counter this with like how everyone's fleeing the publishing industry because nobody's getting paid and they can't afford to do it even though they love it because they don't yeah so depressing yeah but i don't know i just i always feel like you know the publishing industry, whenever I send out an email, I get back at least like, no matter what, I'll get back at least like five. If I send out a group email to people in publishing, at least five of them will be on vacation at any time. (laughs) And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. how does this work? They're always out of the office, you know, constantly (laughs) on vacation. Um, But it is, you know, these tensions that you describe for Joelle between her ambitions as an artist and her ambitions to sort of transcend the difficulties of her upbringing, the, you know, the poverty of it, the economic hardship of it, but also the relational aspects of it, you know, having like an overstressed mom who has been raising two daughters and who is uh, drinking too much and then having a sister who is gifted but has her own battles with substance and who's kind of gone off the rails and also has a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, that's kind of the, the setup for Joelle. And, you know, it, it was, uh, re- I think it was really interesting to me to see her grappling with questions of responsibility Um, you know, this familial responsibility that she feels like weighed against a responsibility to like her own dreams. Mm -hmm. And it forces the reader. And I think this is what you were trying to confront too, is it forces the reader to be like, well, how important is one's dreams? And in particular, if they are artistic dreams, right? you know what I'm saying? And I think somebody who maybe is in a position of greater privilege 
doesn't have to ask that question. They just pursue their little fantasy. Yeah, or they have more positive feedback in their life about the value of art or the value of doing creative things. And I think also, I don't know, the conversation around class is usually just really limited to money and the financial aspect of that. And I really wanted to talk more about, you know, the, you know, the repercussions of having less money and how having fewer resources can just have these snowball effects in your life where you don't think you deserve certain things or you don't have an outlet for certain ideas or whatever. Well, and I think there are some scenes that are particularly moving to me where Joelle is candid with her friends yeah, I think for the first time or, you know, there for a, a few times, you know, where she's kind of starting to be honest about who she is and where she's from with these people who are of greater means, greater resources, greater privilege. Yeah. And, and that's like a big challenge for her, too, is to try to be on an, a real honest level with her friends who she doesn't believe would ever understand. Well, that's what I that's the that's what I'm wondering, because I think in life maybe like the common idea is that you should just be yourself and say who you are and people will accept you. <laughs> but then if you have like a heavy reality, you know, mm -hmm. like you have a difficult, you came from difficult circumstances or you have a family that's like riddled with addiction and uh, economic hardship and you're talking to people that you're friends with and you sort of lay it on them. Yeah. The truth is that it doesn't always pan out well. <laughs> right, right. You know, like sometimes people go, oh, that's too much for me, you know, and they, they don't have like, this is my, I always say this uh, with like an eye roll, but they don't have the bandwidth for it, you know. Right. Uh, or I, they don't understand the gravity. I don't know. I feel like I've experienced that a lot lately too with epilepsy stuff. Like I don't, I don't know how much to say to people or how much they want to hear about it. And I feel like, it's hard to get people on, I don't know, in a way, and like have a conversation I feel good about. Yeah, I, I hear you. Like uh, with regard to like my son's uh, epilepsy and disabilities is that like people will be like, well, how are you doing? And you go, <laughs> like in my head, I'm like, do you really want to know? Yeah. Like, do you want the truth or do you want me to just say fine? Like, right. I think they just want you to say fine or like things are okay. You know, we're working through some stuff, but it'll be fine. Yeah. And they go, okay, because then that doesn't involve them. But it makes me wonder how I fail with things like that, too. If if people have reached out to me and I just don't make the effort to get it or or something. It's pretty eye-opening, actually, to be on the side of something so serious. Yeah, I think so, too. And it's like, it's worth reminding myself, like, how often, like, we all fail yeah. to, like, be there for each other or to, like, see each other even, you know? I think yeah. sometimes you fail, people fail to be there just because they just don't know. They're just, everyone's so caught up in their own shit, you know? Like, it's very easy to sort of miss what's going on, even with people that you're close to, but... It's almost just like the, um, just, stand, I don't know, the standard. Everyone's just kind of minimally noticing each other, I feel like. I don't know. It takes a lot of effort to really connect. It does. Maybe like more and more so as you get older. Do you feel like... Yeah, maybe that's it. Do you feel like you 
Like, has this made you better at it or anything? I guess you're more tuned to it when you're dealing with something heavy. You, maybe it hopefully makes you more empathetic. But maybe you're just so overwhelmed with your own stuff that you miss stuff even more. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it might be that. I feel like I might I might have even less bandwidth than I ever did for other people's um, hard things. Not that I don't want to be there for them, but it's just, I don't know. It's just very... A lot. I don't know. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, it's funny because, you know, Joelle sort of has a similar situation happening for her in the yeah. book where she's got like the demands of her social life and her art school and just like just wanting to, to have a life of her own and to sort herself yeah. out at the age that she's at, which is very normal. I mean, what is she? I don't know how old she is when she goes off. 18, is that? I think she's 20, 20. in okay. the book. Okay, yeah. so 20. But like that's the age to go and want to sort of carve out some space for yourself and figure, yeah, out for who, sure. figure out who you are. And yet she has this pull back to her hometown in the, in the Central Valley of California. Is that right? Uh, in the north. In the north. So it's called Lodi. Yeah. And uh, it's like a small town that she's from. And, you know, her mom is there. Her sister is sometimes there. And she is confronted throughout the book with like these moral quandaries, you know, because her mom's like, you know, I've got your sister's baby. His name's Brian. I've got to get to work. I don't know where your sister is. Someone needs to watch him. And Joelle's like, I can't be there. I got school. She's like, I have drawing class. <laughs> yeah, I got drawing yeah. class. And yet, like, as a reader, I, I was like, yeah, you do. Like, why are you responsible as a 20-year-old to sort of come in and save the day? Like, you deserve to have your own time. But then there's also the, but what about this baby? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there isn't really a clear answer. And I didn't want to draw a clear answer in the book because I think it's just a very difficult question that, I mean, I do think family is important and I do think you should be there for each other when the need is there. Um, but I also think that maybe Joey's being taken advantage of a little bit. So I think kind of one of the impetuses of the book is her growth in like being able to separate from her family and, and make the choices for herself. And have some boundaries. Yeah. And have boundaries and, and be able to be okay with those boundaries. So, one, another narrative thread that you're weaving, you know, in this book, the, the, again, the time frame is over the course of a semester. And 
Joey's in a film class. I mean, she's a visual artist. She draws, but I think she ha- she takes a film class to be with her friend Suze, right? Mm-hmm. And her semester like project that she's working toward throughout the course of the book is really funny. She is going to recreate on video, I guess, the movie Rushmore, even though she's never seen it. And that's like the Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, and it's a self-portrait also. <laughs> and it's a self-portrait. And I want to talk about why you picked the movie Rushmore. Like, And, and have you seen it? <laughs> I have not seen Rushmore. Um, it was actually a, an idea I had just like for myself at, at one point, like years and years ago, like maybe 12 years ago, I I think I was out of school, but I was like, that would be funny to try to recreate a movie that I've never seen. And then I quickly was like, that's so stupid. That would never work and <laughs> wouldn't mean anything. But it stuck in my head for some reason. And it was always Rushmore. I never even considered another movie for it. And you have not I feel seen like, it. No, I feel like Rushmore is just kind of like one of those movies where every arty person has seen it and loves it or something. And I've just always been repelled by that. Okay, because I think it's a deft choice. And I'm sort of surprised that you haven't even seen it out of curiosity, having written this book. Or maybe it's kind of part of the, it's like part of the discipline that you undertook to write the book. You can't see it. You would be like cheating or something. Yeah. But like the more that I read the book and the more that I kind of grappled with what it was trying to deal with, it's the perfect movie because like you say, you know, it's this twee, arty, beloved it's a great movie i mean i i love i love the movie but i also understand why you would be repelled by it for the reasons that you described but also because rushmore speaks to a well i mean rushmore is dealing with similar themes it speaks to a kind of privilege but its protagonist is from sort of the wrong side of the tracks even though he's played by somebody jason schwartzman who's decidedly from the right side of the tracks right as as you talk about (laughs) and it was actually something great that you point out where you're like you know what did you say something about his eyes which have like never never seen pain never seen pain yeah Um, (laughs) poor jason that's probably not true i'm sure he's been through some stuff and everybody's got pain somewhere but um you know it's a private school it's like all these people to the manor born in their blue blazers and it's, you know, it's Wes Anderson. So it's like hyper stylized and like, you know, every outfit is super curated and I can find myself sort of recoiling from some of that. It's too much for me, but yeah, you know, if I'm being totally candid, I think it's probably my favorite movie of his. Maybe the Tenenbaums too, but I like this one because I think it has the most heart or something. I really like, hmm. he's the son of a barber, you know? I think I like uh, his dad. I forget the name of the actor who plays his dad, but he's like this sweet guy named Bert. <laughs> anyway, I know, you haven't, I know you haven't seen it, but <laughs> you, uh, you spend basically the entire book detailing Joey's procrastination around this project and her rumination about it. And it felt very true to life to me. Like who among us who identifies as some kind of artist hasn't just let something drag forever and procrastinate. I mean, I procrastinate every day with my writing. I think most of us do. Like there's so much, I mean, if you think about the amount of time we spend thinking about working and why we're not working 
and distracting ourselves with Netflix and video games and bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's the, the ratio has got to be pretty lopsided. God, it's horrifying. I don't even want to think about it. But I'm also kind of, in, I don't know. I mean, I'm interested, obviously, in like the procrastination and and the just the lows of the artistic process and getting through that lack of confidence in your ideas and, and the execution and stuff. So having a semester long just procrastination seemed like an interesting challenge to do to like try to show these little peaks of confidence or like oh yeah this will work out or I know the direction now and then back to oh god no I can't possibly do this this is demented well that happens though I mean for me anyway it's like it's one of the one of the most humiliating parts of writing a book is having a day where you're like almost like manic with excitement because you feel like you've got it yeah (laughs) or you have like a good a good day you know you're like oh my god this is it and then the next day you like reread it and you're like this is fucking terrible like yeah it just makes you feel so disoriented you're like i i I don't know you can't it's hard to trust yourself (laughs) yeah and you just have to keep working through it which is which is the hardest thing in my experience is trying to get through those lows of of like feeling like I just wasted five months writing this and it's all garbage. I have to start over finding a way to, to be okay with that or to get past that and, and, and work through it. Is that, was that the case with tell me and I'm i uh, I'm an artist? Like, did you? Oh have, yeah. 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 I mean, I wrote this over five years, I think. So I had so many points where I wanted to give up or didn't know where to take it or, you know, had stuff going on in my life that, was very distracting so yeah I mean it was cool to have an outlet for those kind of thoughts too while writing it like if I was feeling really stuck it was an opportunity to kind of explore that feeling and dissect it in a productive way I was gonna say it's like the perfect book to be writing like even even your shitty days are like fodder (laughs) yeah it was it was and also you know all the days where you're like there's so many things happening in the world. How could I be just sitting down to focus on writing a novel right now? Like that's also fodder for, for the guilt Joey's feeling and like how to believe in yourself doing something that maybe outwardly seems really silly. Well, that's, you know, I just had this thought or conversation yesterday. I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a writer and I've had it so many times. It's like, why are we doing this? Like, it's yeah. so much work <laughs> mm-hmm. for, let's be honest, like most of the time, so little reward, uh, at least financially. And it's kind of out of whack. And yet we can't stop. I don't think anybody who really is into this, I don't think that you can. Maybe for a while you can. And I don't yeah. mean to sound precious about it, but I just know from experience and from my friends, like people just one way or another, you're going to come back to it and you're going to try to write something because you just can't not do it. Yeah, I agree. It's a very mysterious feeling. Do you feel like I've like I sometimes half joke that it's a kind of mental illness or like maybe this is a way for us to process life. I think in the book there's like there are these funny interstitial like handwritten what do you call them messages or it's like it's like Joey it's clearly an in, in, intended as like Joey's notes to herself or written on scrap paper or something. And there's one, I think where she talks about like, if I, 
if I actually had therapy, I wouldn't need this art degree. <laughs> right. So maybe there's some truth to the idea that like writers, maybe in addition to therapy, make their art as a kind of therapeutic exercise. Yeah. But, it's yeah. It also feels like kind of a delusion or something or like, yeah, I feel like mental illness might be apt. I am, you know, I have avoided getting a real job my whole life and like, I'm just, you know, keeping like, I'm going to finish this book and then we'll, you know, I'll think about, you know, I'm a parent now. I should start worrying about money more, but after this book, I'll do it. And yeah. I think I'll just keep doing that. I think I'll just keep making excuses to write instead of like, I don't know, face the real world. I'm listen, I'm 47 and I've had some variation of that exact same conversation with myself my whole life. I'm like, this is the last book. I just need to get this one done. I feel like an addict or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and there's then, no real reason for it that I can explain. I'm not, I'm not making money, you know, in a way that I can support anybody. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not, I don't know. It's just a weird. But let me, let me flip it because I think part of the reason why I do it and why I, all of us do it is that we find such solace in books as readers. I read your book and I come away from it feeling so good. Like to, to read a book that really connects with you, uh, it's impossible for me to put a book down like this one and say to myself, well, this doesn't matter. This work doesn't matter. It matters like so much. It might only matter to like one reader at a time, <laughs> but it matters like in a deep way. Uh, and in a way that's not like superficial and fleeting, you know, hmm. even though the particulars of the plot might leave me as they often do, just because my brain can't hold it all. Like, I think books make a deep mark on you, you know, especially yeah. the ones that, that you really connect with. And I don't know, I just like, I, I can't shake my belief in the importance of the work from that perspective, like from the perspective of a reader. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you're working on something you really care about. So I guess that's the whole draw is that it's your art and you're putting yourself into it and hopefully connecting with people. I also find publishing really fun. So that's part of it. What about it? Just the thrill of knowing that it's making its way out into the world? Yeah. And seeing people react to it and, and kind of like knowing that they're, in in my head a little bit or like experiencing my version of the world that's really thrilling yeah and you must hear from people too i mean you hear every writer i think in this day and age as long as you have a, a way for people to get in touch either on social media or email it's easier yeah. it's easier than ever to like reach out to a writer and that's always nice when you hear from like a complete stranger yeah that's nice i i kind of prefer like seeing reviews and things that were, they're not talking to me or like, I don't know. I don't feel the pressure to react or like, I don't know. I like just seeing people talk to themselves about me. <laughs> Without you having to enter the conversation. Yeah. I'm going to read a quote from your book that I really like that I underlined. Cool. Uh, it goes like this. I did not, I didn't want to stop making art, even if I didn't understand why I was making it. I didn't trust anyone who understood their own art. What was art but a way to tell people to go away forever? What was art but a one-sided argument that the artist started? What was an artist but someone who wanted to be understood 
but didn't know how to communicate normally. Very good, Brad. Do you do you feel like you don't know how to communicate normally? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I, yes, just listen to our old podcasts. I do not know how to communicate. But I feel like we've come a long way. And I think too I think that wanting to like fix something in writing on the page until like I get it right. That's another big part of what drives people to do this work. Like you're obviously an articulate person who's good with language, but it's hard to nail a lot of this tougher stuff down, like the abstractions and like the fine details of, I don't know, human psychology and interpersonal exchanges and the pressures of class and familial relationships and all that kind of stuff. Like you try to talk about that stuff and it's often just like a big mess. <laughs> yeah, it's so complicated and and hard to explain and also you know your feelings change about it i mean mine do over the course of a conversation even so i get just confused while i'm speaking and and it's very helpful to write it down on and see it and kind of explore my own understanding of it yeah the joke that I just I, myself well the joke that i make is like i don't i don't even agree with myself like, right in the, in the in the course of like one conversation, like you and I will be talking and within a five minute span, I'll find myself saying something and then silently being like, I don't know why I said that. Like, yeah. Just talking know. yourself out of it. Or yeah, I sounded like the other side. Yeah. But you know, I, I think maybe what you're trying to do when you write or when I write is trying to get to a point where when I look at it on the page, I find the least amount of disagreement or something or I can like live with what's there. Yeah. I don't even, yeah, necessarily agree with what I write, but it has to be like sound logic, I guess, to me. It has to ring true somehow. Yeah, or be, yeah, like a true in some way. So what about comedy? Because this is a very funny book and you're a funny person. You have a dry delivery. So I think maybe people, you know, like you, you kind of have to like read Chelsea to get it <laughs> or hang out with her a lot and like get yeah. get the music of her sense of humor but you're a comedic writer to me. Like, is that how you conceive of yourself? Is that something you're aspiring towards? It's something I'm, I'm aware of, but I'm not. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of complicated. I, I do like being funny. I feel like it's kind of a crutch in writing, kind of like, and especially from doing readings and stuff. It's like a quick way for to like sense approval as if someone laughs or is like, this is so funny. Um, so I think that kind of like, I don't know, my insecurity feeds on that and wants that approval. So I think that's part of it. I also think like it's it can be kind of a distraction from like sloppy ideas or something. If you're inserting a little joke, like it kind of, I don't know. I don't know. So I actually was trying to be less funny in this book. Like I was trying to like remove things that were just purely jokes and make it more like layered humor or something more substantial rather than just like one-offs. It felt that way. Cool. I think the humor, yeah. I think I feel like the humor is always like earned. You know, it's not like you're, you're never just like doing a bit. It's always, yeah. it's always like really deeply related to what's happening at a human level in the story. But it's the kind of stuff, it felt to me anyway, it's the kind of stuff that you stumble upon in the process of writing. 
where you're noodling with something and noodling with something, kind of digging around in there. And the deeper you go, you start to see the funny or there's something that just, I don't know. Yeah. It's like little observational stuff, you know, that's like really deft and um, rings true, which like the humor usually does. Well, it's also how, how I get through life is trying to find the little humorous moments in the really tough spots like yeah. just or just the ridiculousness of a situation or something. Well, I was going to say, you know, it's like it's one thing to try to distract yourself or to try to earn approval from readers or people who are listening to your read. But I think also it's a way of being attuned to like the needs of the reader and to be kind to them especially if your book is dealing with tough stuff like it's kind of like the spoonful of sugar you know like you mm -hmm. well also i feel like very traumatized people are usually funny so it makes sense for joey to have a sense of humor because she's been through so much and has to you know s still find a way to enjoy her life cope yeah what do you read I'm curious, like who are, I mean, I, 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 these questions sort of suck because I, I always draw a blank when people put me on the spot, but I'm just curious to know, like, who are some, like, in your panth your personal pantheon of writers who have influenced you and who you sort of revere, who would make the short list? Um, yeah, I always draw a blank too. And I feel like I'm not, I don't know, the people I like to read are really different from me, I, I feel like, as writers but I've been into Lydia Millet and Ali Smith, Laura Vandenberg. I don't know, which I feel like are all pretty serious writers, but, but have like lightness and um, cleverness and just kind of unexpected things happening. Yeah. What are you drawing from them? Like, you know, I know I get the, I get the notion that it's like nice to read people who aren't too much like you. Like I got enough of me, you know, like I don't need, yeah, yeah. I don't need to read somebody who's like reflecting my sensibility back at me all the time. It's nice to go out and be with people who are different than you are on the page. But like, yeah. what is it? Are, are there specific things that you're responding to? Like the cleverness, just the, the big intelligence. Yeah. I guess I just like to be surprised and not know what's coming and, and, and um, yeah, just have a totally different experience than I would than I would give or have usually. And in terms of like putting this book together and getting it, getting the various parts to sort of click into place, what was the learning curve like for you, having written essays and short stories before, to get a you know an entire novel to feel so unified? Because this book definitely feels like well honed. Um, thank you. Yeah. I, like, I admire, I admire its construction. Yeah. I admire its construction. I think I, well, for a long time I was struggling with the, the voice and the tone and the structure because I had different ideas about, I think I was like pushing against my own natural voice and my natural way of writing and trying to write something that felt more like novelistic. And when I finally made the choice to, to do these kind of more vignette style kind of um, broken timeline not broken timeline I mean it's chronological but it's like you know you jump from one scene to the next without really any explanation pretty much every scene once I figured that out and realized that it's just the voice I've been writing with for years in in many cases then it felt I don't know why I was struggling with like just accepting my voice for this book I guess just the idea of a novel makes you think it has to read a certain way. 
I feel like, yeah, I have to learn that over, over and over again on every project that I do. Yeah. Like you, you try to avoid yourself and then you come back to yourself eventually. That's the only way that it's going to work. Yeah. And I also just love like the challenge of doing something completely different and want it to feel different and want it to feel like a new thing I'm doing, but it's always going to be me. And I feel like I just have to accept that it, I just have my voice and I can't, I'm not really going to be able to successfully stray too far from it. Probably. I feel the same way. I think there are writers who work from the outside in really well. Like they can just inhabit. I mean, I think about it like actors who you kind of feel like they play the same character over and over, but it's different stories and different worlds, obviously, but they, they're just kind of like playing a version of themselves. That's really interesting. And they just find the characters to play that that works for. I yeah. feel like that's how my approach is starting to feel like my characters always kind of feel like me, like a version of me, even though they're, it's not my story. Or I mean, at least this novel is not my story, but it, I put so much of myself into it and imagine myself in, in these experiences to pull the story off. So yeah, I don't know. No, I think that's right. That's actually a really good comparison because you have like leading men or leading women and then you have like character actors. That's the way that it's described, right? And these character right. actors can sort of like inhabit all these different roles like that are completely you know distinct. But then like a guy like George Clooney, it's just George Clooney. <laughs> yeah. But he's playing. And he, has like, to, he has to have a certain kind of George Clooney-ish role. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's not going to work. But yet, it's totally enjoyable and noble, or at least for some people, anyway. Like, it, like we need that. We need both. I guess is what I'm saying. It's not like one is better than the other. It's just some people are tuned different ways. Yeah, and I think you have to accept the the style that you have naturally. I don't know. I think we always, or maybe you don't have to, you can, you can keep challenging yourself. I mean, I think you should keep challenging yourself, but. but no, but I think you're right. Like I get that you want to challenge yourself. I also have this sense that like people always want to be more and different than what they are. It's so easy to resist who yeah. you are. You're just like sick of yourself or something. But I think at some point having that degree of like creative self-knowledge and like knowing what your strengths are and just how you're wired is probably going to serve you well and resisting it is kind of futile yeah and and i think the work will suffer if you're resisting it too much or or can't accept what you're good at yeah well and just go with that you're good at a lot of different things because you also you're one of these like you know polymathic uh creatives where you're like a good writer and you're also a really gifted visual artist uh i don't know if listeners know this about you but you can draw beautifully and um, much like Joey. Why are you laughing? You can't. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Okay. But you can't. You have not. I mean, listen, you can pick up a pen and draw up, you know, a person in your life, like with <laughs> alarming, well, not alarming, but like just uh, uncanny, like accuracy and beauty. You're a gifted artist. Thank you. I do like portraiture. And that is something that you share with your protagonist, Joey. Mm -hmm. And what I'm interested in is hearing you talk about the relationship between your visual art life and your writing life. I've heard in the past or like read, I think, like writers who are gifted in both ways or maybe who like to dabble in visual art on the side, like they 
they find it like a nice respite from maybe the rigors of writing. Like it works on different parts of the brain. Like, is there some sort of symbiosis between the two for you? Less and less, I, I think. I think when I was younger, there was a lot of overlap or a lot that I was learning from one and applying to the other. And now I, I feel like they're really separate. I mean, the last few years I've done art mostly for money and not really for myself visual art so that feels really different and I also yeah I don't know just want it want it to feel really separate from my writing lately and I and I uh yeah I don't know I mean I I knew I was gonna have to answer questions like this with writing a book about art and and having like an art background but I honestly don't um I don't really consider myself that much of an artist right now and uh i think yeah i don't know i mean i'm so busy with like being a mom and doing normal life stuff that like i've had to just cut out things from my life that don't make sense to spend time on um and i hope i get back to doing art again but but yeah for right now i don't feel like i get much like satisfaction from doing visual art do you ever when you're working on a book draw like portraits of your characters to try to get like a visual of them or something does that help deepen your understanding of who they are i was thinking about it for this because i i played with the idea of having art in the book and and or making it a graphic graphic novel at one point which was a really crazy idea but so yeah i did some drawings of them and and was like considering their appearance a lot more than I usually do. I don't think it's that crazy of an idea for you to do a graphic novel. You could do the whole thing. Yeah, it would have taken probably 20 years. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> but, maybe, yeah. maybe, your ne- maybe your next book. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about something technical and writerly that I admired in this book. And I'm going to pitch it to you as a question because your experience with it might be different than mine. But as you were describing earlier, you know, this book is sort of... Um, scene by scene I mean I don't know that's a dumb thing to say all books are scene by scene but it jumps around you know but there's a lovely flow to it it's never like jarring in a way that disoriented me or anything like that but what I want to ask you about in particular are these unconventional creative and writerly choices that you make where you'll have a more conventional scene where Joey is at art school or hanging out with some boy at a concert or whatever it is, whatever the scene happens to entail. And then the next bit in the book will be, for example, her Google search history. You know, there are these search history chapters that are very funny. You know, they sort of, uh, you know, it's like a recurring motif throughout the book. And it's very funny and creative. And I was like, oh, I wish I would have thought of that. Like, that's a good way to sort of investigate her character that feels like contemporary and universal. Like we all search for weird shit online, right? It's like a fact of everyday life. I haven't seen that done in a book. Maybe I've missed it, but so there's that. Or there's like a job description, like a Craigslist job description that she's clearly looking at. Or I'm trying to think of what other ones there would be. Some of them are really short, but it has that sort of collage effect where you're juxtaposing conventional narrative 
with something quick or at least in a one-for-one -one way, unrelated. And the question that I'm building towards uh, has to do with how it can seem when it's done well, like a no-brainer, like, oh, of course this was placed next to this. But my experience as a writer is that it's actually really hard to get the fit right and to make those transitions work. Was that the case for you or was it just kind of intuitive and it clicked and it worked like pretty much first time out? Mm, it was mostly intuitive, but it was also a struggle to make it feel right. It felt like I approached it sort of like a collage. Like I printed out the pieces and sort of moved them around and, and saw how they fit together, which was really hard because also, you know, it's a chronological story so the things have to fit together and make sense in that place so it would be like a lot of rereading everything to make sure this one little chunk was in the right spot um but yeah it was also like i feel like place to give the reader an opportunity to see joey outside of herself a little you spend so much time in her brain with her that it seemed like a little bit of a break to just see what she's searching for not not like what she's telling herself but just what she's doing in the world and or what she's reading online or whatever it seemed like a little bit of a break out of her brain which i thought was necessary given how like how much anxiety she has i want to talk about like fate which i think is part of her psychological struggle in the book because her fate is turning out you can she can sort of feel herself bending off from her family her mother and her sister both of whom seem to be struggling more than she is or who don't maybe have the opportunities in front of them that joey has because of this art school and the financial aid that she gets to go the fact that she's living in san francisco which yeah. is you know a big city with lots more going on and also, she doesn't, notably, she doesn't struggle with substance in the way that her mom and sister do. Like, she drinks in the book, but I never got mm -hmm. the sense that, like, you know, it just seemed like normal college kid stuff. It didn't seem, like, problematic, like self-medication or, like, off, right. the rail, off the rails drinking or something. And to me, that's just, like, that's just kind of dumb luck in life. Like, some people are mm -hmm. born with what I call, like, the allergy. You know, they have, like, an aller allergic reaction to alcohol or drugs, and some people don't. Yeah. And then also shit just works out for some people. And yeah. I know I, I've heard the counterpoint to this. Like there's no such thing as luck. It doesn't just work out. People make things happen. I think mm -hmm. there's some truth to that, but it doesn't feel clean to me. It doesn't feel like a clean one or the other. It feels like some weird combination, like a messy it's combination. It's definitely both. It has to be both. Like things are random. The world is random. And yeah. I think Joey is incredibly lucky and has also made choices that have put her in lucky positions. And I also think being at art school and being around rich people is just kind of a way in. Like these people will give you opportunities as as happens to Joey that help her and it's nothing to them. And I think that's really real too of just being in, in these like resourceful environments is just, will just create luck essentially mm. you know it's yeah i mean i've had this conversation with my wife and with friends of ours about like just sending your kids to school 
in a place like Los Angeles. I'm like, God, I mean, I grew up in Indiana and Wisconsin and had a very lucky upbringing. So I'm not like trying to denigrate it, but it's different from growing up in a place like this. So it's a little bit like strange Mm -hmm. to imagine my kids, like who are they interacting with? Like they go to school, they go to school. Like my daughter went to preschool with like the children of like these famous actors <laughs> just like what kind of youth is this but it, then it's yeah, also so weird it is weird but i'm also like well I, I think i would be lying if i didn't think to myself if i didn't admit to thinking like well this will probably be good with her so like good for her because she'll like know those people <laughs> like when they're yeah when she's older she will have known them since preschool like maybe they can like help her or something like you're right i mean it, it's it's a fact of life and i maybe wish that it weren't so much that way but like you put yourself in an environment like art school where you're in contact with these privileged people and theoretically anyway it can open doors for you and i think it's way more likely i mean i think if joey had stayed in lodi she wouldn't have had the luck she had i mean no one was gonna swoop in and save her in lodi right unless she was like extraordinarily lucky Right. Which she could have been. I so, mean, it happens. Like a vinter, a, a winemaker, I guess. That's like the way, <laughs> yeah. that seems to be, the as, as it's described in the book, it's like you go to the wine industry when you live in this like, you know, town. And um, I have to say too, since your book deals in film, at least somewhat, that as I was reading it, I could not help but think of the movie Lady Bird. Have you seen it? Oh, mm-hmm. It's a creative, your book and Lady Bird are cousins, I feel that's, like. Yeah, that's cool. Um, definitely I had a lot of the same feelings like your book is incredibly moving it's got a big sweet heart and I think that's why it succeeds maybe that's why any like work of art succeeds you're really rooting for Joey and I want to read another passage from the book where she's talking about uh you know, the, kind of the tensions in her life where she has this pull from her mom and sister to come back home and try to help them navigate the challenges that they're facing versus the tensions that she feels within art school, you know, class related and otherwise, where she's looking at her friend Suze and her friend Diana and kind of coming up against their privilege, their comparative privilege and what that means for them and what that means for her. And I think this is something that I love to see on the page because so many of us as artists, especially if we have lesser means or lesser good fortune in some sense, we can feel like I'm fucked. Like this isn't going to happen for me. And so I'm going to read a passage that sort of alludes to all this or talks about all this. And this is, you know, this is Joey narrating. It would be good if I moved home. Maybe struggling to keep up with people who are doing better than me in every way was making me miserable. Maybe I'd be happier if I wasn't trying to be happy. Maybe life would be easier if I just let it wash over me like a wave instead of trying to claw my way out through sand in an attempt to get to a a probably imaginary beach where one can supposedly view the waves of the ocean without being pummeled by them. I related to that. Am I, like when you're taking on any kind of ambition, but I guess in the case of us and for the purposes of this book and this conversation, like artistic ambition, are you, is it a fool's errand? <laughs> like, are you just making yourself miserable? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you be happier if you just could live more simply and like want less? Mm-hmm. And also like, 
wouldn't it be a lot wiser to just not give a fuck what's happening with people in your life, like your friends, whether we, like, like sitting around thinking about what they have versus what, what you don't have. You know what I'm saying? Like we all, yeah. we all torture ourselves with this stuff. Yeah. I don't have an answer. That's like what I was exploring in the book, but I don't, I don't know. I think there's many answers and I think, yeah, art can feel like um, a pointless struggle, but it's also the source of just so much beauty and, and like, I don't know, understanding of the world that I feel better off for trying. Yeah, I like the idea too of like building a body of work of some kind. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think I'm obsessed with rec obviously recording some aspect of my life and, yeah. <laughs> and your life. <laughs> I'm obsessed with recording your life. We've done like, this is our third episode, but I, uh, I like the idea of like something tangible. Like I was here, I tried, Yeah. I was confused. Here you go. You know, like that feels good to me somehow. Yeah. I don't want to like lead a frivolous life, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Like you want to look back and be like, I tried. Yeah. To make me, I tried to understand myself. I tried to understand the world. I tried to create something worthwhile. And it, who knows if I succeeded or not. But <laughs> now I'm dead and it, I'll never yeah. know. <laughs> I'll let other people figure it out. Well, it's, uh, I think it's a big achievement. I'm wondering if there's been any, is there any talk of like film rights or TV rights? I feel like this could potentially be like a, a limited series. I want to see an art school drama or an art oh, school man. dramedy. Like, yeah, you know, let's do it. I mean, you've got a... Uh, <laughs> you screen, like, right, right? I mean, you know, I've dabbled. I'm not any kind of expert, but <laughs> I think that this could be good material for that. I think Joey's such a winning character and I like to see the collision between like uh, artistic ambition and class. Yeah, I think it would be really fun. I hope someone wants to do that. Would you want to screenwrite it? Mm, I think I would want to. I would want to be part of it somehow. But I mean, I'm curious about the process. But it seems also like I don't know what I would. I don't know how you would adapt it. So I think someone else with more experience should probably do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to flesh it out or take it in some new directions. But yeah. Do you have another project in the works? Like, is this, are you just enjoying sort of this moment or are you working on something? I've started another novel, but it's like, like you were saying, like just in a very messy early idea stage, still working out what the point is, why what, I feel What does compelled. that look like? What does that look like? The messy idea stage? Or is that like you actually trying to draft or are you just like sitting around like doodling notes or something? It's like a Word document that's um, just just like full of ideas about like some scenes are sort of fleshed out and some characters are sort of fleshed out. And then there's just a sentence of like, I think this should happen or maybe this would happen or maybe this character dies or something like that. So in a way, you're building an outline. I guess so. Yeah. Is, is that what you did for Tell Me I'm an Artist? Uh, no, no. I mean, it's a, it was a similar approach. I mean, I never really get to an outline, but it's similarly like maybe like a skeleton, like starting with the basics and then fleshing it out from there. Yeah, like a messy, it's like a, it, at best, like a very messy outline. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like an ideas document, but it also has some structure to it. Yeah, I mean, I tr I've tried to like go and place things where I think they should be, but it has. I mean, it's just such a mess. It's just like, I don't know. I feel like I need I need help or something. <laughs> like, like I don't know. Help with what you mean? Just help like working. I don't know. Like some, I feel like I need like a writing club. I'll be in your writing club. You will. Yeah, I'll read your stuff. Okay. I, seem, I sincerely stuff. will. I sincerely will. And I, uh, I think as I was reading your book, maybe the major dramatic question, or there are like two major dramatic questions for me, was like one, what's going to happen with this Rushmore project that she's working on, and two, what's going to happen with her sister and her mom you know, in that like familial relationship. And I guess three, like, is she going to be able to stay in school? Mm -hmm. Because there's that question looming over her. Like, is she going to have to go back to Lodi? Like, is she going to make it, you know? Yeah. And what I'm wondering creatively in particular, because I think the hardest, I mean, it's hard to land a novel. I find like the end is hard to make it satisfying and to feel like you've really resolved it for the reader in a manner that feels like authentic and not like patronizing or forced, you know, it's like, you want to try to like tie up everything without being too cute about it or something. Yeah, exactly. And as I was reading the part that I stressed about the most, like from the perspective of like creative empathy was like, I was like, Oh, how's Chelsea going to handle this Rushmore project? <laughs> was that the hardest part to land? I felt like maybe it would be like maybe the personal yeah. stuff, it would be easy, but like, what was the final project going to look like? And I don't think we should spoil it for readers. We'll let them read it. But I just think like, it's worth talking about how you got to the final draft. Like, was it a lot of trial and error? Like, did you, how much did you screw it up before you got it to where you liked it? Uh, a lot. I, you know, the project itself is kind of a dumb idea. So I thought, and she doesn't, you know, she's not, she's not really that interested in it throughout the course of the novel. And so it has to be sort of a half-assed disappointing project in the end, but it's also the end of the novel. So it has to be satisfying to read like right. about this final project. So right. yeah, it was a very hard landing to, to, to make both of those things happen where it felt like, okay, she's, this makes sense for her project. It makes sense in a way for her growth or her development. And it also sucks. And is like, you can tell no one cares. And like, <laughs> she's just like, okay, well that's done. But I also, but I should say, and I'm not going to give away too much, but I feel like there is an emotional authenticity to it. That is why it works. It's why it works maybe in the classroom to whatever degree that it does, but it's especially why it works for the reader. And it I feel think she's being real for, that, for like once. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like she finally, like it might be like a sloppy last minute effort, but it's her. Yeah. And it's her saying, like speaking from the heart or telling what's really going on with her. And that resonates with me on so many levels. Uh, first of all, it resonates with me as a former film student. Uh, I made like two end of semester films or end of the year films when I was in film school, like my junior year and senior year. And the first one was like for the, in the context of film school, it was like hyper-produced. 
like there was a script and I found some girl on campus who was like British, who was like an actual stage actor <laughs> and who like, t- like showed up on set, like feeling like she was like, we were like 19, you know, and she felt like it was like Catherine Hepburn or something, you know, it was like, it was very, That's like, so funny. yeah, it was really funny. She was like smoking at like six in the morning. <laughs> we were out at some like reservoir and it was a, it was a film that was supposed to be a horror film about a woman who like drowns her ex boyfriend's dog it was just so bad um and it it got huge laughs like in the screening so you can imagine me like sitting there as like a pretentious like film student thinking i'm showing everybody my horror film i mean i'm blushing like now like my face is hot (laughs) and it was like everyone afterwards was like that was so hilarious and it was not at all what i intended and i was like so yeah i was humiliated like just awful and i think it's sort of like killed my confidence like it should have you know I was like I don't know what I'm doing you know and then the next year I was a senior and I was just sort of like checked out I just wanted to be done and I waited until the very last minute and I ended up doing a film where I just sat down in front of a camera and started talking and then kind of wow yeah but it was like all about and I talk actually read about this in my book a little bit but it it was like by far and away the thing that went over the best or something probably just more raw and authentic that's what it was and yeah. maybe that's what you know maybe there's a lesson in there um that seems like the, like part of the lesson for joey in the book i related to it a lot and yeah. uh kudos to you for like sort of landing the plane in all three like narrative threads like i feel like you landed the rushmore you landed the uh the, fi- the familial thing and then you landed her sort of at least we know what's going to happen to her a little bit in the future, you know, at least her immediate future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a really touching scene. I know we got to split sometime soon, but there is a really touching scene in the book where, you know, some of the logistics of her life, like making rent, where is she going to live? And she forms this kind of relationship with a ficus tree outside her window. <laughs> and I found it like really unexpectedly moving and relatable, like how you'll, come to the end of a time in your life and you can feel like a transition looming and you'll start to attach in an unexpected way to some inanimate object or like I guess a living plant or something like something that you normally just don't even pay any attention to like I think I do that I don't know I just I found the relationship between her and that damn ficus tree like one of the most moving relationships (laughs) in the book (laughs) oh my god that's amazing (laughs) yeah like this nostalgic pre-nostalgic feeling yeah of of like leaping this time in her life but also like a kind of a lesson like wow like we should be paying better attention to the stuff in our life there can be this beautiful tree outside our window we don't even appreciate it and then one day we move and it's gone i guess that's just the nature of life but yeah i'd love well i'm glad the ficus tree is getting its it's due. Yeah, this is its shining moment. And then yeah. the other thing I want to talk to you about uh, before I let you go is the way that Joey describes like finding, like her friend, you talked about having these privileged friends who can sort of open doors for you or do things for you. And it's like nothing to them. But like mm-hmm. one of her friends in the book, and I hope I'm not spoiling too much, says to her like, oh, you know, you can live in my apartment for the summer. Mm-hmm. Sort of helps her out. And mm-hmm. Joey's like, this is like winning the lottery. She describes it as like feeling like she just won the lottery. And uh, 
her rich friend Sue's, it's just like a, it's like a no-brainer. Doesn't cost her anything. I mean, literally, doesn't cost her anything because her parents yeah. are paying for it. But her room was just going to be empty. There was no, yeah, there was no loss for Sue's. It made me think about. I mean, kind of to bring things around full circle a little bit, like the the need for people to sort of be honest about what their needs are uh, or whether or not that's a good idea. Because I guess that can backfire too. If you're like mm-hmm. talking to your rich friends at art school and suddenly you're like, I think I'm going to be homeless. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, right. That might not always end Unrelatable. up. Unrelatable. Yeah, that might not always end up with you getting an invitation to like stay in their room for the summer. But I guess I sort of wish it was a world where people could just sort of say what was actually happening without having to sugarcoat it or hide stuff. Right. Maybe that's or, what yeah. this book is about in some ways. Or, like, or, yeah, ask for help. I don't know. I mean, that's such a hard thing to do is ask for help or even identify what you need is really hard sometimes. Have you struggled with that? I mean, have you gotten any better at that in life? Has there Have there been times where you've, especially in the context of being a creative person, where you've actually said, like, hey, I need help. <laughs> and have you gotten it? I'm trying to to do that more I think as a parent you have to kind of more um just to have the space for yourself and not get run down you have to ask for help with your kids I mean it's just so it's just like you have to so I am trying to do better with that because it's just so necessary but in general no I have a really hard time asking anybody for anything and I would much rather just take on everything myself and and do it and not have to burden anybody. Yeah, I'm the same way. Well, this is a great novel. I hope you're proud of it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Are you proud of it? Do you feel good? Yeah, I feel good about it right now. Yeah. Right now. Okay. Right now. Hopefully it lasts. Yeah, you should. Uh, It's wonderfully funny and heartfelt and smart. And uh, I think people are going to love it. And... I hope that the next one happens relatively quickly. You know, I know you're in the early stages, but like, don't wait too long. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you too. Yeah. Good luck with, uh, with Casper and all that, you know, goes into parenting a child with epilepsy. I know what that's like, but uh, I love to see your face and to talk to you. And I'm happy to help you celebrate this great book. So kudos to you. Good luck with it all keep in touch and uh, I wish you well. Thank you so much, Brad. All right, there we go. That was Chelsea Martin. Her new novel, Tell Me I'm an Artist, is available now from Soft Skull Press. You can find Chelsea Martin on the internet at cacadolce.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Chelsea underscore Martin. She's also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Tell Me I'm an Artist. Go get your copy right now. Do yourself a favor. The Other People podcast is on the internet. The the official website for this show is otherppl.com. You can follow it on Twitter, at otherppl. And the show also has an Instagram feed. Uh, I believe the handle is at otherppl.podcast. If you would like to email me, if you want to send word, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget to sign up 
for the weekly newsletter. Once a week, it happens. You can sign up for the newsletter. It's free over at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Same newsletter in either place. Don't forget as well to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, what have you. Rate it and review it. Take a couple of minutes. It really helps the cause. Likewise, I hope you will support the show if you are able. You can do that for as little as $1 a month. Just drop a dollar into the hat every month. Help me keep this thing going. Go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other P-P-L pod patreon.com slash other PPL pod support the show the other people podcast has its own YouTube channel did you know that if you're a YouTube person you can listen to the entire archive of this podcast on YouTube so here's how you find it go to YouTube search for the show by name other PPL with Brad Listy and when you find the channel subscribe hit the subscribe button it's free The Other People Podcast has its own official app. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. I want to make you aware. The Other People app is free. It's a great way to listen, so go get the Other People app wherever you get your apps. Next week on the program, I'm going to be talking with A.M. Holmes about her terrific new novel, The Unfolding. So stay tuned for that. Appreciate you guys listening. Hope everyone is doing all right out there. All right, and I will talk to you again soon.